0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. I couldn't conclude a series about kids who kill without talking about school shootings. Unfortunately, in America, this is an all too common occurrence. And perhaps surprisingly, or not, many are committed by juveniles. We've become familiar with the names Kip Kinkle, Luke Woodham, Eric Harris, and Dylan Klebold, among others. But today, I will discuss a case that you might not have heard about. It happened here in California, and it was only the second mass shooting by a minor in U.S. history. Even the perpetrator of this shooting wonders if she is responsible for all the school shootings that came after. And yes, you heard me correctly. This case is unique in several ways not the least of which is that this crime against schoolchildren was committed by a female. The fact that a young girl went on a murderous rampage decades before there was a Columbine is a surprising and fascinating turn of events. Join me for Episode 8 of Once Upon a Crime. This is Chapter 3, Brenda Spencer. Brenda Ann Spencer was born on April 3, 1962 in San Diego, California. In January 1979, she was a 16-year-old high school student attending Patrick Henry High School in San Carlos, a suburb of San Diego. Brenda was a small girl, standing only five foot one inches tall and weighing 85 pounds. She had long reddish-orange hair that was parted in the middle and fell straight down to the middle of her back. She wore large-rimmed glasses that made her look somewhat bookish or nerdy. She preferred to dress in baggy t-shirts and jeans and oversized sweatshirts. Her favorite item of clothing was a navy watch cap or beanie that she often wore. She considered it her lucky hat. Brenda had always been a bit of a tomboy. When she was young, she excelled at softball, bowling, soccer, and especially golf. She had two older siblings, a brother Scott, six years older than her, and a sister Teresa, who was four years older. All three children had at one time been top-rated junior golf champs in the San Diego area. Brenda's mother, Dot Spencer, was an active sportswoman as well. She played golf avidly and worked as a bookkeeper for the Andy Williams San Diego Golf Tournament. Brenda's father, Wally Spencer, had met Dot when he was enlisted in the Navy and stationed in San Diego. He became an audiovisual technician for San Diego State University. Dot and Wally seemed to be polar opposites. While Dot was social and outgoing, Wally was quiet and introverted, They divorced in 1972 when Brenda was about 10 years old. Brenda was close to her mother. After the divorce, her parents began a bitter custody battle. The two older children told the judge that they would prefer to live with their father. They were teenagers at this time, and some say that Wally provided less structure and therefore rules than Dot did, so perhaps this was their motivation for wanting to live with their father. Whatever the reason, the judge decided that he did not want to split up the children so he awarded Wally custody of all three of them. Dot stayed in the family home, and Wally purchased a second home just a few blocks away on Lake Atlin Avenue. Their new house was located directly across the street from Cleveland Elementary School. Brenda's demeanor changed after the divorce. She became quiet, kept to herself, and no longer played sports. She was considered a little odd by her schoolmates in that she was so small and so quiet, but for the most part, she flew under the radar. While she never liked school and didn't excel academically, she was a very bright girl. She was artistic, liked to read, write poetry, and was a talented photographer. She even won a photography competition that was put on by the Humane Society. Brenda loved animals, and they were her favorite subject for her photography. She often remarked that she wanted to be either a photographer or a veterinarian. Soon after the divorce, Wally and Brenda lived alone in the house on Lake Atlin Avenue. Her sister attended college nearby, but opted to share an apartment with other students. Her brother Scott, who she was close to, had had some trouble at home and at school. He was considered wild and smoked pot and drank too much. By the time Brenda was in high school, he moved out and was spending time traveling, but still kept in contact with his little sister when he was in town. At first, Brenda used to visit her mother most weeks, but as time went on, she visited her less. Over time, Dot left it up to Brenda how much she wanted to visit her. By the time Brenda was a teen, she sometimes only saw her mom every other month or so. Dot didn't seem to know a whole lot about Brenda's day-to-day life. Brenda and Wally also loved the outdoors. Most weekends they spent together hiking, exploring the nearby mountains, and target shooting. Brenda had been shooting pellet guns since she was young and was an expert shot. One of Wally's few friends, Tom Miner, says that Brenda was a crack shot, even better than him, and he considered himself an expert marksman. In the fall of 1978, Brenda decided that she wanted a rifle. She nagged her father incessantly until, for Christmas that year, he gave her the gift she most wanted. It was a Ruger semi-automatic twenty-two caliber rifle with the scope. These types of rifles were easy to use, lightweight, and accurate. While Brenda had never been in trouble, she began to do poorly in school at petro Henry High. She started to ignore her schoolwork and was failing many of her classes. In January 1978, she was transferred to Garfield High School. Garfield had programs to help students who were failing in the mainstream high school curriculum. Wally and Brenda's brother and sister all say that Brenda's behavior changed for the worse when she began to hang around a younger boy named Brent. Brent was three years younger than Brenda, but they spent a lot of time together after school and on the weekends. They enjoyed watching television together and especially police shows. They would often call cops pigs and sometimes joked about being snipers and killing cops. Either one or both of them seemed to have an issue with authority. It's necessary to mention that Brent's stepfather was a San Diego police officer. It was after she became friends with Brent, her family says, that Brenda began to get into trouble. She began neglecting her schoolwork and getting into minor fights. In the summer of 1978, she and Brent were caught on the campus of Cleveland Elementary School and charged with shooting out a window of the school with a BB gun and breaking in. Brent's family moved a few miles away to another town later that summer, and Wally says her behavior began to improve. That fall, she returned to Patrick Henry High. Her only problem, her father said, was that she would sometimes suffer from PMS so severely that she often had to stay home from school during her time of the month. She had headaches and severe cramps that would sometimes keep her in bed for a day or two. In January 1979, Brenda was living alone with her father, Wally, who, besides being at work every day, had begun taking college classes in the evenings. Brenda rarely saw her mother. Her sister was gone at college and didn't visit often, and her brother Scott was traveling. Brenda didn't have many friends and seemed to be alone most of the time. On Saturday, January 27th, Brent came to town and spent the day hanging out with Brenda. It was one of the first Saturdays in a while that Brenda and Wally didn't go up to the mountains. On Sunday evening of that weekend, Brenda asked Wally if she could have the keys to the van. Wally didn't question why she needed them. She seemed upbeat that day, and so often lately she was in a bad mood. He didn't want to risk annoying her and have her go back into her shell, so he simply gave them to her. He noticed that she walked in with some clothes that were still in the van from their last camping trip. He wondered why she would want to bring her dirty clothes inside right now. It was obviously too late to wash them for school tomorrow, but he let the question slip from his mind. On Monday morning at 6.30 a.m., Wally opened Brenda's door to wake her for school so he could drop her off at Patrick Henry High before heading to work. Brenda was already up and dressed, but she asked her dad if it was okay if she stayed home. She complained of severe stomach cramps and said she felt nauseous. Wally was used to Brenda's monthly illnesses, and so he gave her permission to stay home from school this cold Monday morning and left for work at 7 a.m. Soon after, Brenda retrieved the bundle of clothes she had brought in from the van the previous evening. In it were boxes of ammunition that had been inside the van along with the camping supplies. There were about 700 rounds of long-shelled twenty two caliber bullets. She picked up the Ruger Carbine semi-automatic rifle, her recent Christmas present, and loaded it. While lightweight, the rifle was extremely powerful. It had a 10-round box magazine that was easy to load. Brenda changed into a pair of tan pants, a dark hoodie sweatshirt, and her lucky navy watch cap. She put on her wire-rimmed glasses that she needed for seeing far distances. She took the loaded rifle and boxes of ammunition to the entryway by the front door. The door had several glass panes on the top half of it through which you could see out to the front of the house. Using the butt of the rifle, Brenda smashed out two of the lower glass panes. She adjusted the rifle's scope and named it out of one of the broken window panes. It was almost 8.30 a.m., and her rifle was pointed directly at the front of Grover Cleveland Elementary School. <laughs> Cleveland Elementary School had an enrollment of 300 students, kindergarten through sixth grade, and 13 teachers. Burton Ragg, aged 53, was the school's principal. He was well-liked by the students and parents and was a relative newcomer to the school, only being assigned to the position after the former principal had retired the previous fall. He was a World War II veteran and had worked for the San Diego School District for almost 30 years. Immediately after the 8.30 a.m. bell rang to start the school day, a shot rang out. Nine-year-old Monica Selvig was walking up the driveway of the school toward the administration office, immediately right of which was the gate into the chain-linked-off school campus. She was hit in the left side and fell about 20 feet from the office door. Other children were walking around her, but at first no one connected the crack sound from the rifle to the child's fall. More shots rang out and Mary Clark, age 8, was shot in the abdomen, while another 8-year-old Greg Verner was shot in the buttocks both fell in the driveway near the sidewalk. Seconds later, Crystal Hardy, also age eight, fell to her knees, screaming and clutching her wrist in pain. A bullet had passed straight into and out of her wrist. Seven-year-old Audrey Stites appeared to be in shock, walking dazedly near the sidewalk, holding her elbow that had been hit by another bullet. Burton Ragg had been in his office when the shooting started. Familiar with the sound of gunshots, he ran out towards the front of the school where he saw the sprawled bodies of the children. He yelled to the children to duck and yelled, "'Run, Crystal!' while running towards Monica. Before he could reach her, he was hit in the chest by a bullet that would settle near his heart. A sixth-grade teacher, Daryl Barnes, ran towards Mr. Ragg as he saw him fall. He froze when he saw the bloodied chest of the principal, but only for a second before running quickly to pick up Monica. Bullets were flying by his head and breaking out windows behind him, but he was able to run with Monica through the gate and into the school building. He screamed for the secretary to call the police and rushed Monica to the nurse's office. The office staff could feel more bullets whizzing over their heads through the shot-out school windows. Mike Sukar, the school custodian, was 56 years old and a favorite of the students. A big man, he was a gentle giant with the children, and they all called him Mr. Mike. He had served in battle in both World War II and the Korean War, and now his experience called to him instinctively. He ran out of the building with a blanket to go to the aid of Mr. Ragg, assuming he would probably be in shock if he was still alive. Daryl Barnes yelled at him to stop, that he was running into the line of fire, but he kept going. As he neared Mr. Rag with the blanket, a blow to his back knocked him off his feet only a few feet from the principal. The school, by this time, was in utter chaos. This was one of the first incidents of a mass shooting anyone had ever heard of, and as such, no one was prepared or knew what to do. This was before the days where all U.S. schools were prepared for such tragedy. Now, along with emergency plans for earthquakes, tornadoes, and fire drills, most schools have an emergency plan in case of an armed attack. Known as Code Red, at the first sign of an attack, schools go on lockdown, where teachers and administrators know to gather every child close by and lock themselves in whichever room they are nearest. Blinds are closed, lights are shut off, and the children are instructed to remain silent until an all-clear is sounded. But in 1979, this was still unheard of. Teachers were panicked, children were screaming and running out of buildings and into buildings, and no one knew where the shooting was coming from. Brenda was safely ensconced almost 200 yards away across the street, hidden behind her front door. Amazingly, parents who were running late to drop off their children were still pulling up in front of the school and leaving them off, driving away back home or to work, not having any clue that they had just deposited their children directly into sniper fire. The adults, now knowing that they could not expose themselves to the front of the school or risk being shot down like Mr. Ragg and Mr. Sukar, yelled to the students who continued to file up the driveway. A stray bullet had hit the fire alarm, and now, along with all the other confusion, it was blaring in the front of the school. Children, rather than running into the building and to relative safety, stopped, unsure whether they should proceed, thinking that the school might be on fire. One kindergarten teacher hearing the alarm rounded up her students and led them all outside, thinking it was a normal fire drill, until it finally registered that the danger was coming from outside the building and that children were being shot. By then, the children were panicking and running in every direction. Many took cover under or behind the bushes that lined the chain-link fence in front of the school. Shots continued to be fired from what now was known to be the house across the street. A 10-year-old student, Julie Robles, was crossing the school grounds, and as she saw Mr. Rye lying in the bushes, a bullet pierced her side. She was able to run to safety. Teachers were now corralling the students they could gather or yell to into the auditorium. It was a tough job since many of the children were too terrified or in shock to move. Nine-year-old Charles Cam Miller stood in shock, looking at the two men lying in front of the administration building, when a bullet ripped through his left shoulder and narrowly missed his heart. Mr. Barnes was able to call to him and lead him to safety. The first officers on the scene after the frantic call from the school was made were Dennis Doramus and Robert Robb. Officer Robb had recently joined the police force. He was a 28-year-old and had just graduated from the police academy. When they arrived, most of the chaos seemed to have ended. Most of the children were sheltered in place wherever they could hide, most too scared to make a sound. They didn't hear any more shots being fired. As the officers approached the two wounded men near the entrance to the school, an ambulance rushed up towards them at the same time. Both men were still conscious, but just barely. As paramedics exited the ambulance, they heard a volley of shots ring out. Officer Rob felt a bullet bounce off his bulletproof vest. He quickly helped the EMTs place the principal on the gurney and into the ambulance. As he went back to assist Mr. Mike, Officer Rob felt a tingling in his right arm and hand. Later, he would learn that the bullet had struck his vest and ricocheted and entered the right side of his neck. More police cars began to arrive. By the end of the day, over 100 officers, 30 patrol units, and 20 SWAT team members would be called into action. By this time, it was determined that the shooting was coming from across the street at 6356 Lake Atlant, but they could not see the sniper. The shooter had pinned down the EMTs, Officer Rob, the principal, and the custodian. No one could get near them without another round of bullets being fired. A plan was made to commandeer a garbage truck that was making its rounds down the street. A San Diego police officer and a nearby security guard approached the truck driver and were finally able to drive the truck to the front of the school. They ran over the curb and the sidewalk and drove it into the bushes near the driveway blocking off the driveway and effectively keeping the sniper's bullets from reaching the front of the school. This obviously angered the shooter, who then peppered the truck with bullets in an obvious attempt to hit the officer driving the truck. He was able to exit to safety through the passenger side door. It was now 9 a.m. and the shooting had been going on for 30 minutes. Unable to shoot past the truck and continue hitting targets at the front of the school, the shooting ended. A reporter from the San Diego Union-Tribune was on duty at the police station and heard about the shooting. He called his paper, and all reporters on hand were recruited to try and get the scoop. Two reporters were given the task of trying to make contact by telephone to anyone living on Lake Atlin Avenue to see if there were any witnesses to the unfolding events. The first number a reporter named Steve Weigand called was the Spencer residence located at 6356 Lake Atlin. It was just about 9 a.m. Brenda answered the phone. It must have been soon after most of the shooting stopped, and incredibly, she answered as if it was any other normal day. The reporter explained why he was calling and asked her name. She told him her name was Brenda and that she was 16 years old. He asked her if she knew about the shooting happening in her neighborhood, to which she responded, Yes, I saw the whole thing. When asked if she knew who did it, she giggled and said, Sure, I do. The shots came from 6356 Lake Atlin. Wagon paused for a beat and then asked, "'Isn't that your address?' She giggled again. "'Sure, who do you think did it?' she said and then hung up. The reporter called to his editor who assumed that the girl must be joking, but told him to try and make contact again. He called back and again, Brenda answered the phone. He questioned her to find out if she was serious or not. Brenda inquired whether this was for the paper." He told her it was and had a conversation with her for several minutes. During this exchange, she told him that she attended Patrick Henry High, that she started shooting for the fun of it, and she mentioned that this would flip her dad out. "'Why were you shooting?' Weigand asked her. She calmly answered, "'I just wanted to. I don't like Monday. This livens up the day.'" He asked her if she was shooting at anyone in particular. She answered no and then said something about wanting to shoot a pig and hung up. Wagen was shocked by the calm and cold demeanor of this girl. He related the conversation to another reporter, Gus Stevens. Stevens then called the girl himself. He also asked her why she was shooting. She answered, I don't know. I feel like it. I just don't like Mondays. Does anyone like Mondays? Do you? She went on to say, This is a way to cheer up Monday. Oh, by the way, I nailed me a pig. It's probable that she was talking about shooting Officer Rob. A couple of minutes later, she said she heard someone moving around outside and that if they got too close, she would shoot them as well. She then said, Sorry, I have to go. I want to shoot some more. I want to get me another pig. And then she hung up. The phone calls from the reporters to Brenda ended around 9.20 a.m. Contrary to what she said before hanging up, no more shots were fired. The San Diego Union-Tribune called the police and reported the conversation they had had with Brenda Spencer. The police told them not to call her again, that they would be trying to make contact with her themselves. During the time the reporters had kept Brenda occupied on the phone, rescue efforts were being made to get the school children scattered around the grounds into the safety of the auditorium and evacuating the injured victims. The San Diego Police Department's hostage team negotiators arrived in around 9.45 a.m., They tried to make contact with Brenda for more than an hour, but found the phone line continually busy as if it were off the hook. They had also made contact with Brenda's father, Wally, and were interviewing him a few blocks away. About 11 a.m., the SWAT team took over Lake Atlin Avenue, having evacuated residents from the block. They set up in the house next door to the Spencers. SWAT team members were positioned around the house and on rooftops to have a clear view of any and all entrances to the Spencer home. Hostage negotiators P.E. Olson and Chet Thurston continued to try and make contact with Brenda using a bullhorn. There was no response. They could not know whether Brenda had committed suicide, had escaped from the house somehow, or simply hiding out inside. They continued to wait, calling by phone and by bullhorn. Finally, around 12 p.m., Brenda answered the phone. Officer Olson tried to establish a rapport with her, asking her if she needed anything. She asked for a Burger King Whopper. He said she could have one once she surrendered. She told him that the bullhorn was annoying her and that if she wanted to, she could have shot many more people, including police that were stationed around her house. She told him to have them back off because they were pissing her off. Olsen kept her on the phone, asking her what weapons she had and why she was shooting. She bragged about being a crack shot and said she was having fun. She expressed anger at the custodian and that she had shot him because he was trying to get everyone off the school grounds and out of the way. She also expressed anger at the cop who had drove the garbage truck and blocked her view to the school. Olson asked her if anything had happened recently to set her off, and she said that she grew up hating people all my life, my school, my friends, I hate everybody. Olsen asked her if she was upset with her father or anyone in her family. He asked her if she had a message for her father, and she replied, Yes, I do. Tell my dad to get screwed. When asked if she had a message for her mother, she said she did not, but I don't like her either, she said. They were considering having her parents try to talk her into surrendering, but after hearing those statements, they scrapped that strategy. Brenda continued to talk off and on with the officer, sometimes remaining silent and alternately being boastful and chatty. She told him that she took drugs, any dope that I can get my hands on, Today I took some downers, smoked some pot, and drank some beer and whiskey. She also bragged about fighting dirty, and that she had recently fought with a friend over a dope deal. She had split his head open, she said, and gave him a concussion. She also said that she always carried a knife with her. While the media would make much of Brenda's violent nature and drug and alcohol abuse, it would later be revealed that almost all of what Brenda told the police that day was pure braggadocio and posturing. Brenda sounded less like a badass and more like a schoolgirl who watched too many cop shows. Finally, around 2 p.m., she reestablished contact once again and told Olson that she had 750 rounds of ammunition and that there was about 400 rounds left. Officer Olson asked her to surrender. She said she'd think about it. Twenty minutes later, he called her back. Brenda asked him questions like, would she be going to Juvie, Juvenile Hall, or the police station? and would she be handcuffed? She made it clear that she wanted to be taken from the scene in handcuffs. Brenda was acting out a real-life crime drama, and she was the star. She asked whether this was being shown on the news. Olson told her that quite a few news people were in the area. That's great, she exclaimed. Soon after, she agreed to exit her house and place her rifles on the ground. Brenda calmly exited her house, took a few steps to the middle of the driveway and carefully laid down the twenty-two rifle and the pellet gun. She then went back into the house and picked up the phone. She then was told to pick up the ammunition and place it outside as well, but not too close to the weapons. I'm not really sure why this was necessary, but it took Brenda at least five minutes more to pick up all the ammunition as she explained it was all over the house. She then exited the house at 3.09 p.m. and was apprehended by two SWAT team members. She did not resist. The siege had ended about six hours after it had begun. While the community was still in shock at the violent attack on the elementary school and the fact that the perpetrator was a little 16-year-old girl, the police investigators moved in to try and make sense of Brenda's actions. They entered the house to gather evidence and found 36 empty shell casings and two live rounds on the floor of the home immediately inside the entrance. This information would be mistakenly reported in all news outlets, and even to this day, it is said that Brenda fired approximately 40 rounds into the school. In reality, after interviewing Wally and determining that Brenda had at least 750 rounds of ammunition and had reported having about half of it left, she probably fired over 300 to 350 rounds. Witnesses at the school reported hearing many, many more shots fired than the 40 that were being reported but investigators never recorded how many shell casings they actually found, if they ever even looked. Brenda had plenty of time to hide the empty shells in the six hours she was in the house, and the house, by all accounts, was cluttered and in disarray. It seems as if the investigators early on determined that they knew what had happened and who had done it, and the evidence collection and or reporting was pretty minimal. Also on the floor, in the entryway, were two knives, a folding knife and a hunting knife. Next to that was a pint-sized bottle of Southern Comfort Whiskey that was about a quarter full. This bottle of whiskey would continue to be a mystery. Wally had been an alcoholic and had given up all alcohol consumption many years before, and so never kept any alcohol in the house. Brenda's brother Scott was a drinker, but was not there at the time and denied ever having left whiskey in the house, but only that once or twice he'd given Brenda a beer. He said she was not a drinker and that even one beer would make her so sleepy that she would knock out. It was never discovered where this liquor came from. Brenda also bragged about doing several drugs. While her brother and a couple of friends would say that they thought Brenda smoked pot once in a while, they'd never seen her do any other types of drugs and she never seemed impaired in any way. When she was arrested, she did not appear to be intoxicated. A test for drugs and alcohol was determined soon after her arrest and the toxicology screen would come back negative for any drugs or alcohol. Brenda would later use the excuse of being drunk and high as a reason for her actions, but that would be a lie. One thing that wasn't a lie? Brenda definitely was a crack shot. Her father, brother, and her father's friends, Tom and Jan Minor, whose property they would visit on weekends to shoot and camp, would all say that Brenda was an excellent shot. Later, an investigator was hired by Wally Spencer's insurance company, due to lawsuits being filed by the victim's families. They were suing him because they felt he had to know that his daughter was a ticking time bomb and that he should be considered liable due to his negligence. The investigator, Eric Hart, would later write a book titled Does Anyone Like Monday's The Brenda Spencer Murder Case? In it, he recounts his interviews with Brenda's parents, Wally and Dot Spencer, her siblings, Scott and Teresa Spencer, Brenda's friends, Brent and Susie, the Spencer's neighbors, and Tom and Jan Minor, Wally's friends. This is probably the only thorough investigation done into the psyche of Brenda Spencer and the motivations for her shooting. After learning about Brenda's skills as a marksman, the question it leaves us is, why didn't she kill more children? She obviously could have. She had a clear shot for several minutes and many children who were easy targets due to all of the confusion. Yet when all was said and done, there were two deaths. Sadly, both Principal Burton Ragg and Custodian Michael Sukar would die of their injuries. Nine children would be wounded, but not one was a fatal shot. The investigator, Eric Hart, would determine that Brenda had not been trying to kill the children. She was not randomly shooting, but her shots were very targeted. Yes, she was trying to hit children as well as adults, but her fatal shots were all intended for the adults. The principal and the police initially those that she considered to be in authority. Mr. Mike was killed because, as she stated to the hostage negotiator, he was getting in the way of her intended targets. Officer Rob was spared only because he had been wearing a bulletproof vest. While almost everyone who was interviewed said that Wally was an attentive father, who by most accounts spoiled Brenda and spent a lot of time with her, he was not an outwardly affectionate man and his home was sparsely furnished, looking more like a bachelor pad than a warm and inviting home. Wally was no homemaker and Brenda was a self-proclaimed tomboy, so they lived simply. Media accounts, however, would report that Brenda was a neglected child and that the home was littered with beer and liquor bottles. They would also, perhaps looking for some way to make sense of Brenda's actions, quote neighbors as reporting that Brenda was an out-of-control child who abused animals, and a story about how Brenda had reportedly lit tales of stray dogs and cats on fire was widely circulated. But when Eric Hart would interview neighbors who knew Brenda, none could say where this story originated from. All would report Brenda as a quiet girl who was introverted but pleasant. She loved animals and had a menagerie of her own, including a dog, a rat, a gopher, and a snake. She was also well-liked by neighborhood children. She would often play with them and share her snacks. She was helping a neighbor child to build a bike and would caution the younger ones to be careful when riding their bikes in the street. One thing friends and neighbors alike report was that her good friend Brent was bad news. Most of the neighbors thought that he was a mean little kid, always up to no good. The time that Brenda had been caught breaking into the school and another time when she was caught shoplifting, she was in the company of Brent. They all breathed a sigh of relief when his family moved out of the neighborhood. Brenda continued to be demonized in the press, especially after they got wind of her nonchalant statements that her reason for the shooting was just because she felt like it. Especially troubling was her statement, I hate Mondays, doesn't everyone? I was just trying to liven up the day. These are some of the lyrics to the song that I played at the intro. The song was written by Bob Geldof, and it's called I Hate Mondays, in response to Brenda's flippant attitude about the shooting. Brenda was branded as a drug abuser, an animal torturer, and a violent child who attacked others, and bragged about being a sniper and killing cops. This last bit may have had some truth to it. Brent himself says that he and Brenda used to joke about this exact thing, but in reality, nobody ever took Brenda seriously. Not surprisingly, the public wanted someone to be held seriously responsible for this attack on their school and their community. The district attorney, in response perhaps to the public outcry, decided to charge Brenda as an adult. Although this has become common practice in serious charges brought against minors, It was almost unheard of in 1979. She could only be kept in custody until the age of 23 if tried as a juvenile. The prosecutors felt that trying her as an adult was appropriate due to the special circumstances, namely committing murder while lying in wait and multiple murder. She could have received the death penalty for this crime, but since she was under 18 years old, she was ineligible, and so the maximum sentence that could be imposed was life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. A fitness hearing was held to determine whether she should be tried in juvenile or adult court. Brenda didn't help her case, since soon after her arrest, she refused to cooperate with the authorities. She was interviewed by psychiatrists and social workers, but she would not talk to them. The judge quickly concluded that she should be tried as an adult. She was to be kept at juvenile hall without bail until her arraignment in adult court. While the legal wrangling was going on and the media was still excoriating Brenda and the press, her defense attorney was doing everything he could to try and get Brenda a fair trial. He even succeeded in getting a change of venue from San Diego County to Orange County. Because the Cleveland school shooting made national and even international news, it's unlikely this would have made much of a difference. Brenda, her attorneys, and her father decided that her best possibility of ever being free again would be to take a plea. On October 1, 1979, Brenda pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder. The deal was that she could take the plea and be sentenced to 25 years to life with the possibility of parole and perhaps someday get out of prison. If she had gone before a jury, she could have been sentenced to 25 years to life without any possibility of parole. She was sent to the California Institution for Women in Chino. Her attorneys had hoped that she would be sent to the California Youth Authority until she was at least the age of 21, but that was not granted. Well, then, what did cause this tragic event to occur? What could cause a seemingly normal 16-year-old to perpetrate a mass shooting of innocent schoolchildren? There are a few factors that have been brought to light as possible motivations, and I have a theory of my own. Brenda was subjected to several tests when first arrested, including a brain scan. It was determined that she had a mild form of epilepsy. Her parents said that she had had a bicycle accident in which she crashed into a pole, which resulted in a head injury. The brain scan determined that there was some damage to her frontal lobe. It is known that an injury to the frontal lobe region of the brain can sometimes cause a lack of self-control, outbursts of anger, and in some cases, violence and aggression. So this was an argument the defense attorneys wanted to make in Brenda's case. However, because the diagnosis was labeled as epilepsy, there was an outcry by experts in the field and those who suffered from epilepsy. They were outraged that the diagnosis of epilepsy was being tied to the type of violence that Brenda had been charged with and they argued that there was no known connection between epilepsy and violence. The defense had to back away from this strategy. However, there is evidence that a rare form of the disease, psychomotor epilepsy, which is a seizure disorder that affects the temporal lobe of the brain, has been linked to violent acting out. And this is precisely the type of disorder that Brenda was diagnosed with. Another factor that was considered in Brenda's case was that she was suffering from serious symptoms of premenstrual syndrome, or PMS. Brenda's father had explained how debilitating PMS was for Brenda, and that she often had to stay in bed due to severe cramps, headaches, and nausea. Premenstrual syndrome has since been cited as a defense for a criminal charge. If the defendant can show that, one, she was suffering from premenstrual syndrome at the time of the crime was committed, and that, two, because of her condition— either that the criminal act was an involuntary act or that at the time of the criminal act, she did not possess the mental state required by law for the commission of the crime. PMS has also been said to cause depression. Because this defense was rather new and untested, it was not seriously considered as a motivation for the shooting. But I think there may be a simpler explanation for Brenda's actions. And let me just start by saying that I'm not an expert by any means. I do have a background in psychology, psychology, and I received a master's degree in correctional psychology, studying and analyzing the causes of crime and the rehabilitation of criminals. But my theory is more based on just the study of human nature, so take it with a grain of salt if you like. Brenda, by everyone's account, was very affected by the divorce of her parents. And while divorce was becoming more common during the 1970s, it was very uncommon for a child to end up in the custody of her father rather than her mother at this time. Brenda was a preteen when her parents split up, and she went to live almost full-time with her father. This is a particularly sensitive time for a young girl, and one of the times when a girl most needs a female presence. While she had an older sister, her sister herself reports that she was never close to Brenda. While Brenda now identifies as a lesbian, her friends report that she did have crushes on boys in school, but never acted upon them and never had a boyfriend. It is possible that Brenda was questioning and confused about this new stage of her life, and without a female present to help her make sense of it, this may have caused anxiety or depression or at least stress. While most report that Brenda was close to her father, it was not reported that she shared feelings or emotions with him or with anyone. They were buddies who enjoyed camping and shooting together, but Wally himself didn't have more than one or two close friends, and even they felt like they didn't really know him. It must have been hard for a young girl to go through puberty essentially alone. While Brenda's mother lived nearby, she began to spend less and less time with her. I watched a more recent interview with Brenda's mother and read the report the investigator made of his interview with her soon after Brenda's arrest, and I found Dot to be a pleasant but emotionally detached woman. By Dot's own account, she left it up to Brenda to come over when she felt like it. Dot, it seems, never sought to have consistent visits with her daughter— and didn't seem to make it a priority to have an ongoing relationship with her. That had to be devastating for young Brenda. The investigator questioned Dot about Brenda's troubles at school. As you'll recall, Brenda had been failing classes and was sent to another school to try to help get her back on track before she flunked out of high school altogether. Dot's answer to this was that she knew Brenda had been moved to another school, but she wasn't really sure why. What mother who is present at all in her child's life has no idea what's going on with them academically, especially when it is something with such a serious consequence? When Dot recalled getting the phone call where she was told that there was a shooting and that her daughter was a likely suspect, Dot's response was that she could not leave work at this moment. She had been counting cash at the golf course office, and she was concerned about leaving all the cash unattended. Excuse me? You hear your daughter is a suspect in a mass shooting upon school children, and your first thought is for your job? This is very telling, in my opinion. And there has been some reports of speculation that Brenda might have been a victim of sexual abuse by her father. It was reported early on that Brenda and her father shared a bed. But the police investigations after the shooting reported that there were three furnished bedrooms in the house. When Wally was asked, he said that he and Brenda had once shared a bedroom, but never a bed. Brenda and her siblings went to live with their father when Brenda was 10 years old. They moved into a three-bedroom house. It's possible that the two teenage children received their own rooms while young Brenda's bed was placed in her father's room. Perhaps Brenda felt more secure after the divorce and in the new surroundings sharing a room with her father. But it was obvious that Brenda was in her own room now. Perhaps after her sister moved out, she inherited the extra bedroom for herself. But there was no allegations of any kind of abuse by the other children or even Brenda herself. That is, until her parole hearing in 2001, but I'll go into that in a moment. Finally, there is the factor of her friend Brent. Everyone, and I mean everyone, who was interviewed about Brent all said the same thing. He was a bad kid, always in trouble. He was mean, a thief, and had a destructive or violent streak. All said he was an obvious bad influence on Brenda. Not to say that Brenda was not responsible for the bad behavior she exhibited, breaking into the school, shoplifting, etc. But it seems that with Brent, she had an accomplice to perhaps act out on all her anger, stress, or whatever it might be that she was thinking and feeling, but not expressing to anyone. With Brent, she could play act at being a badass. She would indulge in watching cop shows. SWAT teams were especially well represented on television in the 1970s. And Brenda and Brent enjoyed talking about being snipers and killing pigs. They railed against authority and planned how they would outsmart the cops. And don't forget, Brent's stepfather was a police officer, so if he felt anger or resentment over the rules or authority at home, it is likely he would direct this towards his stepfather, the cop. It leaps out at me that Brent spent the Saturday before the shooting with Brenda. He had not been around for a while, having moved the summer before a few miles away. Brenda declined spending that weekend, as she usually did, with her father and the miners at their property in the mountains. Did her and Brent spend the weekend riling each other up over getting back at the pigs, as they called them? Brent, when interviewed, said that Brenda said she was going to pull off something big on Monday, so when he heard about the shooting, he knew it was Brenda. Really? Or did he get her to talk big like she often did and then dare her to do it? He also said, when I found out what she had done, I felt kind of happy because I could trust her because she had been telling me the truth. Wow. Wow. I also wonder whether Brunt supplied the bottle of Southern Comfort. Where else could it have come from? Maybe he snuck it from his home or was able to obtain it somewhere else. It was obvious that Brenda hadn't drank any of it that day. Maybe he gave it to her to steal up her courage before she started the sniper attacks. The police never investigated how she got the liquor, so we'll probably never know. One other thing about Wally, before I share an even more bizarre turn of events concerning Brenda's father... Remember that he gave her the gun on Christmas? Brenda had been meeting with a social worker because of her problems at school. The social worker was so concerned about Brenda's, quote, lack of self-esteem and isolation from peers and parents, that she had referred her to a psychiatrist, fearing that Brenda might be suicidal. Brenda saw the psychiatrist on December 20th, five days before Wally gave her the rifle for Christmas. Was there no concern on the part of her father for the welfare of his possibly suicidal adolescent daughter before supplying her with a deadly weapon? My theory, then, is that Brenda was a lonely, isolated child with only her father for companionship. Her mother was AWOL. Her brother and sister were preoccupied being young adults on their own. I think that she felt abandoned by everyone, and at the time of the incident, even her father, who had been gone most evenings taking classes that winter. I think she retreated into a fantasy life, fueled by cop shows and violence-laced scenarios that she discussed with her friend Brent. She even began acting on them, the shoplifting, breaking into an empty school, just to get attention or to see what she could get away with. Not uncommon for impulsive teens, but she didn't have anyone paying attention to stop her from taking matters even further. She had easy access to a high-powered weapon and no one to stop her. I think her loneliness turned into anger. And I think her motivation was threefold. To impress her friend Brent and prove herself to be a badass, to get back at her parents, as she told the reporter, this was going to make her dad flip out, and to feel a sense of power. She was in control. She could terrorize a neighborhood, outsmart the cops, and finally have some attention paid to her in a big way. She finally surrendered once she knew she was on the news. The whole world now was paying attention to Brenda Spencer. Brenda had her first parole hearing in 1993. She claimed to not remember the shooting, insisting that she was high on PCP-laced marijuana that day. The board knew that this was a lie and denied her parole. At her 2001 parole hearing, she made allegations for the first time of physical and sexual abuse at the hands of her father. He denied the allegations. She had never claimed this before, and there was no evidence that this was true. The board believed that Brenda was now trying to come up with a story that would make her sympathetic to them, and they didn't believe her. Her parole was once again denied. In 2005, her parole was again denied, for one thing because Brenda had recently inflicted self-harm, cutting words into herself with a sharp object. It was reported that this was the result of a failed romance in prison. She was considered psychotic and a threat to herself and others if released. Her last parole hearing was in 2009. She was denied, and the board ruled that she would not be considered for parole again until 2019. Before we end this episode, I have to tell you this because, as we know, truth is stranger than fiction. By all accounts, Wally has remained a loving and supportive dad, in his way. He still lives in the house on Lake Atlin Avenue, across the street from the school that became National News when his 16-year-old daughter killed two and wounded nine. While Cleveland Elementary School closed in the 1980s due to declining enrollment, the property was sold to a charter school, so now the bell still rings every morning and afternoon, which must be a reminder to Wally every day of his daughter's shooting spree. The bell rings at 8 a.m., about the time Brenda began firing, and again at 3 p.m., about the time she surrendered. Wally makes the five-hour round trip drive every Saturday to see Brenda, as he has been doing for 37 years. It must have been during one of these visits when Brenda was in Juvenile Hall, before her arraignment, that Wally met and got to know Brenda's cellmate, Sheila. When Sheila was released from Juvenile Hall, she moved in with Wally, and they soon married. Sheila was 17 years old. They had a daughter together soon after that. Sheila left Wally not long after her daughter was born. She left the daughter with Wally, and he raised her alone all of her life. Brenda Spencer, the girl that hated Mondays, is now 54 years old. That'll do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, and please subscribe and tell others if you like it. You can also find the show on Stitcher and now on Google Play Music. You can connect with me on Twitter at Upon a Crime and on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod. Until next time, be good to one another.